Today's scripture reading is Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Good morning, fellowship. Good to be with you all. Woke up this morning and I thought, man, I think spring is going to come after all. It's on the way. Maybe not today exactly, but it is on the way. Uh, greetings to those of you, especially those of you that are new and visiting with us. Uh, I know Eric Hoffman already welcomed you, but let me welcome you as well. My name is Rob, and I'm one of two teaching pastors that we have along with Lloyd. And if you're new to fellowship, two things I'd want you to know about our teaching. First is we have a team. Typically, it's either myself or Lloyd. In fact, in our two campuses, our second campus is at Brentwood. When I'm here, Lloyd is at Brentwood and vice versa. Uh, and then we hear some, some other folks from time to time, but it's primarily myself and Lloyd. And the second thing I'd want you to know is that uh, the way we teach here is we'll typically just pick a book of the Bible, not out of the blue. I mean, there's reasons that we believe God leads us to the books that he chooses for us to teach at the season that he, teaches, he chooses them for us. But we'll start in chapter one, verse one, and we'll work our way through. So we've been in Colossians now since last fall. We did take a little break for Advent, but for the most part, we've just been working our way through Colossians just a few verses at a time, which is the beauty of teaching this way, because there's so much depth in these verses. So what Paula read just now, that's, just, that's all we're going to focus on today, just four verses, and they're so rich. Um, Colossians has been reminding us that Jesus Christ is the center of all things. And Paul's thesis, if you will, through this little letter is that he's at the middle of it. Whether you're talking about the greatest, you know, the sizes in the universe, the cosmos, whether you're talking about the smallest little particles of the universe, Jesus is at the center. He's at the middle of it. And therefore, if he's at the center of all things, he must be become, he must become at the center of all of our things as well. Our identities, our families, our careers, our hopes, our dreams. Jesus at the middle, Jesus at the very center. That's the idea that Paul is getting after. And we're getting into a very practical part of Colossians. In fact, um, one of the things that I haven't mentioned throughout this whole series is there's particular passage in Colossians that's one of my favorite texts in all of scripture, and it's the part that we're in right now. Not just today's verses, although that's included, but really all of chapter three. We started two weeks ago, chapter three, and we're now working our way, and today we're in verses 12 to 14. Why is this such an important part uh, important part of the, the scripture from my perspective? Well, it was the first biblical passage in, in, for me in high school that really grabbed on, onto me, that really began to transform my heart. I was raised in a Christian home, and so I you know, accepted Christ very early. But at some point in time, you have to make your faith your own. For those of you that were raised in Christian homes, I know that wasn't everyone in this room, but you know what I mean. You have to, your parents' faith has to become your own faith. And for me, that was in high school. And I don't remember who encouraged me to read Colossians, but someone did. And I started reading it. And Colossians chapter 3, about you know, verse 1 through most of the chapter, was the first text that I really said, whoa. There is something here that I need. And for me, it was when I read these verses, beginning in verse one, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And I didn't really understand all that that meant. All I knew was there was something in this chapter about transformation. There was something in this that lifted me kind of above my, my high school world, my, my friend world, my family world. There was something that kind of put me in this, this like greater, bigger picture that God had some kind of plan for me that was above all the world, above all the little, you know, my little own Rob world, if you want to think of it that way. I sensed there was something powerful in, in this text about human transformation. It spoke to the, the Rob that I longed to be. You ever thought about the, the you that you long to be? The person that you wish you were a little bit? I, you know, I wish I was a little bit more like that. I wish I was a little more patient. I wish I was a little more loving. I wish I was a little bit more like, you know, joyful. Or I wish I was a little less anxious. Or I wish I was a little less this. You ever, you ever think about that person? We all do. The person that we long to be. This text, all of Colossians 3, talks about how that kind of transformation happens. So two weeks ago, when Lloyd started us in chapter three, he used the clip from The Lion King when he taught through the, the text that I just read. For those of you that were here, you know, the, the core idea under all this is what, you know, what Mufasa says to Simba. Simba, remember who you are. So Lloyd said there's kind of a sin underneath every other sin, and the sin underneath every other sin is that you forget your true identity. You forget who you are, and you, you live like someone else. And, and so that, that's where, where sin enters the picture. And then last week, Mike Vogt, one of our elders, was here. And he talked about the fact that sin no longer defines us. It may still affect us, but it no longer defines us. There's an old self you should take off. Like that was the point of last week's message. Take off the old self because it's no longer who you are. Mike said something near the end of that message that I thought really captured it well. He said, become who you already are. It's like who you already are in Christ, become that person. So our text this morning, Paul shifts the focus from the old self that we are to take off to the new self that we are to put on. And this is where we really start to see the full possibility of what Paul is talking about in this chapter and really the whole letter, I think. Paul's answer to the question, how are you transformed into the you you long to be, the you you want to be? The answer is transformation happens as you live out your new identity that has been given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. You are no longer who you were. You are something new. You're a new creation, as Paul writes about elsewhere. He says, transformation happens as your outward behavior starts to match the inward identity that has been granted to you, not through anything you did to earn it. It has been bestowed upon you through grace by faith. In our passage this morning, Paul describes nothing less than what it looks like to finally become fully human, a fully human being in the image of Jesus Christ. 
Let's read the passage again. It's already been read once. It's short. I'm going to read it again. I want you to hear it multiple times so it'll sink in. As I read, if you have a pen or pencil, put a box around the direct reference to Jesus Christ. We've been doing this throughout. There's only 95 verses, and there's about 64 direct references to Jesus Christ in just 95 verses. There's one in this one. It's in uh, verse 13. See if you can find it and and put a box around it as, as we go. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. There's your hint right there. As the Lord, direct reference to Jesus, has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All right, let's go with verse 12 first. The, the first two words, put on, comes from a Greek word, enduo. Enduo means to put on a garment, like to put on clothing. It's almost always used literally in that sense. So, you know, th- think about putting on a jacket, putting on a coat, putting on shoes, putting on clothes. Listen to how Jesus used the same verb in two different occasions. In Matthew 6, verse 25, he's talking to his disciples and encouraging them. He says this, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink nor about your body, what you will put on and do what you will wear. Don't worry about clothing. I'm gonna provide for you the essentials, the, the, the necessities of your life, Jesus is saying. Then in Luke 15, Jesus is sharing a, a, a parable. This time, you know, the parable is really directed to the Pharisees, but there's a lot of people listening to it. One of the most famous parables in the Bible, it's the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. And this is what he says. He says, the son said to him, this is after the son finally you know, comes to his senses and goes back to the father. The son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now look what happens next. This is so amazing. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him in duo. Put the robe on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Did you notice what happened? So the son says, Father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son anymore. And before the father even directly says anything to the son, before he says, oh, yes, you are. You're still my son. He symbolizes it. He represents it. How does he represent it? With clothing. He says to the servants, go get the robe. You know, the robe was the royal robe. Only, only, only the family member could wear the robe. Get the ring. The ring was the signet ring. You know, only a member of the family could, could put the ring on, put it on him, put the shoes on his feet. You see, the clothing was naming him. Paul is using this verb in Colossians 3, not literally, but metaphorically to create a word picture. And he's saying, just like Jesus told the disciples, you don't have to worry about what you put on. And just like in the prodigal son narrative, the son's identity was defined by the clothing that he were put on him in Christ, Paul is saying, God's given you a new set of spiritual clothing. He's given you a new wardrobe, a wardrobe that matches your new identity. Now, I want this to stick with you, so I'm going to illustrate it a little bit here. Um, Some of you have noticed, Rob doesn't normally dress quite this casually, and you're right, I don't. I brought my clothes with me this morning. You know, I I walked in with all this load of clothes. My daughter helped me carry it, and someone said, you couldn't make up your mind? You know, so you brought your clothes, and that would be a little bit like me. But I I want to demonstrate really what this is. Now, I've got in this bag uh, a pair of shoes. Now, I was thinking, I like these Allbirds shoes I'm wearing. They're super comfortable, but I don't know that they're really the, the most appropriate for 
preaching in, some of you were thinking, man, this church is going to pot. You know, Rob's up there with his all birds without a jacket on. Well, okay, you don't have to worry. You don't have to leave the church, all right? The church is not going to pot. See, it looks a little bit different, see? Now, what's happening here is I'm putting on clothing that better matches my identity. What am I? I'm up here to, to share with you the word of God. I'm a teacher. I'm a pastor of a church, and I'm going to treat that with the respect that it deserves. And uh, why don't I go ahead and put the jacket on as well? Now, these clothes fit me because they're my clothes. I'm comfortable in them. And Paul is saying, these clothes that I'm calling you to put on are the clothing that you have been tailored to fit. The clothes weren't tailored for you so much as you've been tailored for the clothing. Now, this is interesting. What Paul is getting after here is he's saying, putting, putting on the new identity simply means your external appearance matching the internal reality that's been true because of Christ. You've been declared righteous by faith, and so start putting on the garments that match the internal reality. I'm like, man, now I can preach, okay? Let's do it. Now, here's what's interesting when you think about this. If you've put your faith in Christ, you are a new creation. Okay, you might not be feeling like one. You might not be living like one at this very point in time, but according to the word of God, do you believe it? You are a new creation. You are no longer who you were. And Paul's saying, so start putting on the new wardrobe. Start putting on your new clothes. Let your external self match the internal reality. Now, let's talk about the wardrobe. Let's talk about these individual clothings, not the literal ones, but what the analogy Paul is using here. He says, he says look, there's a garment called compassionate hearts. You know, there's a jacket called kindness there's some socks called humility. <laughs> There's meekness and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is your wardrobe. Let's talk about them one by one. By the way, if the list sounds familiar, it's probably reminding you of the fruit of the Spirit. Same author who wrote Colossians wrote Galatians. And in Galatians chapter five, he says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those. Very similar list. He's using an analogy there, fruit bearing from a tree just naturally, like a fruit tree bears fruit. It's who it is, it's what it does. Same, anal different analogy, but same basic context. A new person, a new creation wears clothing that matches the identity, you see. Let's walk through each of these compassionate hearts. If you dig into that word, kind of double click on it, so to speak, uh, what you're going to find is it's an internal uh, emotional response to the needs of other people around you. Someone is hurting, someone's wounded, you feel compassion. It's an internal thing. Before you can act on it, you have to have compassion. It has to be inside of you. You feel for other people. You're moved by their struggle because you care. You've been transformed by Christ in such a way to care about other people. This is what Paul is saying. Now, he moves from there to kindness. Kindness is the physical application of the internal compassion. Does that make sense? So you're moved by compassion, and then you're going to display it through an attitude or an action. That's called kindness. So kindness is allowing your care and concern to flow over into your actions. Humility. Humility means putting others' interests before your own. Boy, that's a hard one. Humility is not very popular, is it? It's not popular in our day. It wasn't popular in Paul's day either. By the way, 
Biblical humility is not thinking less of yourself than you actually are. It's not thinking, woe is me. You know, there's nothing good about me. Biblical humility is seeing yourself as you actually are, which is a sinner in desperate need of grace, but also someone who has been loved enough by God that he gave you grace, you see. God's grace met you where you are. So biblical humility is rightly viewing yourself, not viewing yourself less than you are. Uh, I've heard it said this way, and this is also helpful. Humility is not thinking less of yourself as much as it is thinking of yourself less. I think that's a helpful way to think of it. Uh, moving from humility to meekness. I don't love the, uh, the ESV word, that they, word choice here for meekness because in our contemporary context, there, there's almost nothing real positive about meekness. I think we could redeem the word, but another way you could translate this, uh, I think maybe a bit more accurately, would be gentleness. Because the idea here, and you dig into the Greek, it's the opposite of harsh or the opposite of sharp. You ever been around people that are just sharp? You know, they're just harsh. It's just kind of natural they are. Paul's saying, don't be like that. Be, be gentle. Now, the reason I, I really don't like meekness is because of the next, the next, this next point. Gentleness in the Greek can also carry this idea of entering into conflict, but doing it in a way that's constructive, not destructive. So meekness in English, makes you think about, oh, just whatever you want, you know, I don't really have opinions, I can just, whatever you want. No, 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 that's not the word in the biblical text. The word is sometimes you enter into disagreement, but you do it in a way with gentleness with, that's constructive in your relationship with them, not destructive, you see. That's meekness. Let's move from there to patience, slow to become angry. Also, the idea of someone who refrains from exacting revenge when they are harmed. By the way, you see how all these line up with the teaching of Jesus? You know, he says, someone hits you on the, the cheek, what do you do? You turn the other cheek. In our culture, we're like, are you kidding me? You got to stand up for your rights. You know, if someone harms you, you've got to harm them back, etc. And Jesus is saying, no, no, there, there's something beyond that. Um, if you would literally translate the Greek, one way you could do it on this word patience is large-hearted. Isn't that cool? I like that image of someone whose heart is so large that they can absorb, they can absorb um, some offense because their heart is large. You ever been around small-hearted people? They're so prickly. Every little bitty offense, they just get defensive. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean? I'm, you know, get all defensive. Now, Paul's saying, be large-hearted. That's who you are made to be in Jesus Christ. Bearing with one another, the idea of coming alongside each other when we're tired, when we are struggling, when we're burdened, bearing with another. Men and women, life is hard. I don't know if you've been reminded of that personally in your own walk. Many of you in the room have. Life is hard. We need one another. The first thing in creation that God declared not good was human isolation. Genesis 2, verse 18, he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. He did not mean it is not good for the man to be single. That's not biblical 
Paul talks about the beauty of singleness. Jesus himself was single. So there's nothing wrong with singleness. That's not what God was getting after. He says, it is not good for humans to be alone, for a human being to be isolated. So what did he do? He made Eve so that there would be human community. We need one another. You see this. He moves on from bearing with one another to forgiving each other. I love this because Paul is acknowledging the messiness of human relationships. You know, he just said, you, you need one another in community. And when you gather in community, you're going to hurt each other. Because <laughs> all of us, you know, we, we still have some sharp edges to us. Uh, human beings are a little bit like porcupines in the cold. You know, it's like we've got to move toward each other for warmth. It's natural. We desire to do that. But the closer we move toward each other, the more we poke the more we wound each other. And so Paul is saying, when you, when you wound one another, because you will, be quick to forgive Amen. as the Lord has forgiven you. And this is so powerful. He doesn't just say, you know, just forgive. He says, forgive because the Lord has forgiven you. In other words, your pattern for forgiveness and your motivation for forgiveness is not how good that other person is, or whether or not they deserve it. Your motivation for forgiveness is the forgiveness that you have in Christ. And people that are slow to forgive are often people that are not very conscious of the forgiveness, the deep forgiveness that they have received in Jesus. And, you know, he calls it out in this one particular one, but all of these are a reflection of the way Jesus has loved you, Right? So you think about this. Have compassionate hearts. Why? Because Jesus had a compassionate heart toward you. Be kind because Jesus was kind toward you. Be humble because Jesus emptied himself in humility. Be patient. How patient has Jesus been with you? Oh my goodness. Bear with one another because Jesus has been bearing with you and your struggles all these years. And forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Who are we who have been forgiven so much? to withhold forgiveness from other people. Then he goes on, verse 14, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It should be no surprise that love is kind of the crowning attribute, right? So you put on the whole wardrobe, you said, above all these put on love, you know, sort of the, the crowning attribute. Um, it may actually, in Paul's cultural day, more have been likely that he had in mind not a crown, but a sash or a belt, because what they would wear back then, you know, these, these long robes, they have an undergarment and a robe that they would put around it. Without the belt, it wouldn't all be held together, right? So Paul says it holds everything, binds everything together in perfect harmony. But he does use this word, it's above all. Now, what's interesting about above all is the only other place in this letter that he references above all, that someone or something is above all, is Jesus Christ. He is above all. Jesus is above all. Think of it this way. 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. So God himself, his essence is love. It's like God equals love. You got that? Now, we know theologically, Jesus is God incarnate. God as a fully human being, fully God, fully man. The physical embodiment, Jesus is of God. That means he's also the physical embodiment of love. In all its fullness, and all its richness, and all its purity. 
So you get to the list of all these garments, right? No surprise at the very end. Put on love. God is love. Jesus is God incarnate. Put on Christ. That's the big idea. In fact, Paul just uses the shorthand in uh, Romans 13 and Galatians 3. He just says, put on Christ. Same analogy. Put on Christ. And so putting on all these things, all this whole list, is equivalent to putting on Jesus Christ. Here's the big idea of all this. This wardrobe, these are the clothes of Jesus that you've been made fit inside to now wear. How are we going to look like Jesus? How are we going to act like Jesus? By putting on the clothes of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about that we carry the aroma of Christ. Think about that. Someone's scent is, is found in their clothing. And Paul's saying, you're to put on Christ. You, you, your clothes, his clothes are now your clothes. You've been tailored. You've been fit. You've been transformed to fit the clothes of Jesus. Put them on so you'll smell like him, so you'll look like him, so you'll act like him, you see. When we choose to follow Jesus, men and women, we're choosing the path of love. We're, like, we're putting on the garment of love. We're choosing radical love. That's how Jesus lived. Now, I want to apply this briefly, and, and then we'll keep going in the message, but I just want to apply this idea of radical love and following Jesus means, means to love people. There's a lot of different contexts we could apply this point, but I want to say a little bit more about the, something very practical. Eric mentioned to you, we're, we're bringing in the Center for, for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender to come and do a little workshop for us on Tuesday night, uh, March 10th, is the one that's open to all of us, everybody. Why are we doing this? And some of you are like, man, are, are y'all changing your theology? Oh, oh, no, oh, no, we're not. Why are we doing this? Let me explain. One of the reasons we're hosting this event is to help us how to better embody this verse from Colossians 3 in our context. Above all these, put on love. Here's the thing. I want us, my desire for us is that we would become better and better expressions of the love of Jesus Christ who moved toward people that were hard to move toward or that the other you know, religious people in society didn't really know. Like, how do we engage them? Jesus moved toward. Now, what was beautiful about Jesus was he carried this amazing, like, both and. It's like Jesus was all about God's word and, like, was the dotting the I's and crossing the T's of the word of God. And at the same time, he was moving toward people that the rest of society considered outside, do you, see, do you see where this is going? I'm convinced, men and women, the churches that are actually gonna have a, a, a cultural influence in the next two decades are not the churches that are changing their theology because of the cultural moment. Oh no, that's not what we're going to do. But they're also not the churches that are shrinking back and saying, we're not gonna have any conversation we're not going to talk about what God's word says in this cultural moment. You see, it's neither. It's neither of those. The churches that are going to have influence over the next 10, 20 years are the churches that will actually be salt and light. The churches that are, are, are willing to hold firmly to what God's word teaches about sexuality and about identity and all these things. And at the very same time, learn how to embody, the, embody, embody. learn how to better embody, try saying that, the love of Christ for people. That was an important point. I messed it up. <laughs> Holding fast to God's word. Embodying the love of Christ. 
for people around us. That's the kind of church that's going to have influence in the next 10 or 20 years. That's why we're choosing to engage this way. Now, um, by the way, the, the, the room is, uh, I think, over halfway full. So if you're not registered yet for that Tuesday night, man, we want everybody at Fellowship, if you can make it on Tuesday the 10th, to be there. So I'd encourage you to jump on the website soon and register. Okay. We've walked through the pieces of the wardrobe. We still haven't really gotten to the question of how does transformation actually happen? This is where I want to spend the rest of our time. How do we begin to put on our new clothing? I skipped over a critical phrase. I didn't say much about it on purpose because I wanted to come back to it. Paul says in verse 12, put on then, here it is, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. There it is. Before he gets to the list of character traits, the wardrobe, he first names our identity. He says, remember who you are. Chosen, beloved, holy. To be chosen means you were selected, which means you are wanted, you are desired. To be holy doesn't mean you're perfect yet, not this side of Christ's return, no, but it means you are set apart. You know, you're, you've been declared holy and you've been set apart, set aside for something special, something significant, something sacred. To be beloved means you are loved deeply and completely. I love the, the way the NIV translates it, dearly loved. You are chosen, you are set apart, you are dearly loved. If you want to experience transformation, it is massively important that you believe those things. You don't earn those things, men and women. You've been given them, so you receive the identity, and as you believe it, you'll begin to be transformed. This is the key idea of chapter three, as Paul talks about the old self and the new self. Easiest way to understand this is for me to illustrate it. So I want to use this board and illustrate it. Now, if the technology works right, you should be able to see this on the screen. Hopefully it will. But Paul in chapter three basically talks about two different selves. Oh my goodness. Okay, black's done. I just broke black, so I'm gonna shift over here. Okay. Uh, There is an old self and there is a new self. Let's start with the old self. Is that showing up there? No, it's not. Oh, it is. Yes, it is. Wonderful. Okay, the old self is kind of governed by an old identity. Yeah, thank you for that lighting. So you have an old identity in your old self. Now, the old identity is essentially insecure, I'll explain this in a minute, inadequate and fearful. Insecure, inadequate, and fearful. I'm gonna put a heart around this because as we talk about the heart kind of represents your internal self, your core self in scripture. Now, where are we getting this from? Think about in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve sinned, when sin entered the world, they immediately felt insecure, inadequate, and fearful. They covered their nakedness. They hid themselves from God. And God says, where are you? They said, we heard you and we were afraid. Where did fear come from? Where did insecurity come from? Where did inadequacy come from? It was, it's now their identity. And ever since, men and women, we have all been wrestling with those internal emotions, insecure, inadequate, fearful. Now, here's the big idea behind this. Broken identity begets broken behavior. So in, you know, really verses, what Mike Vogt taught last week, verses five to 11, talks about all of the 
old behavior that comes from the old identity. So you have immorality, impurity, idolatry, which in many ways is kind of the root, you know, worshiping things that are not God. Anger, man, if you feel insecure, it's hard not to let that anger come out. Is that not true? Slander is another one. Slander is, is when, that, when that, all those internal things start coming out through your words. And I'm not gonna list all of them from those verses, but, but lies. So your internal self, insecurity, begins to sort of flow out of you and it results in immorality and purity, idolatry because all these things are really just efforts to try to fill the gap inside of you, the gap of your insecurity, the gap of your idolatry the, in, in your fear, you see. Now, the good news is there's not just an old self. Paul says there's also a new self. Blue's not working great. I'm gonna switch over to red. There is also a new self. And that is the, verse, the verses that we're on this morning, 3, 12 through 14. And just like the old self had an old identity, the new self has a new identity. Well, what is your new identity? It is straight from our text this morning. You are chosen. You are holy. You are beloved or dearly loved. That is your new true self. That is your new core identity. And just like old identity, broken identity begets broken behavior, new identity, whole healed identity begets new behavior. And here's the new behavior, compassionate hearts. I'm just gonna write compassion. Kindness, I'm just go straight down this list, right? Humility. patience and then the last or uh, three more actually bearing I'm just going to write that word bearing with one another forgiving and then of course as Paul reminds us above all these put on love compare and contrast the, the blue and the red for a minute the, the, the difference is massive Imagine two cities close to each other, one where everybody believed they were insecure, inadequate, and fearful, and so they acted in immorality, impurity, idolatry, anger, and slander. All the others in the town nearby believed they were chosen, holy, and beloved, and so they responded from that identity with compassion, kindness, humility. How different would life be in the two? It's amazing to think about this. Now, what creates, let's see, I can't do black. All right, I'm just going to go to green. What creates transformation from one to another? You can't start with the external, guys. That's what legalism does. That's what the law does. That's what societies operate for the most part with you know, laws and police and all these kinds of things. Is we're going to control the external behavior. Does nothing for the internal identity. So Jesus gets on this scene and he talks to these religious people and they look good on the outside. See, they're trying to control their outward behavior. But he goes, inside, you're like whitewashed tombs. So what has to happen? The internal the internal identity has to be transformed. That's what the gospel does. 
So I'm going to draw a cross right here. It's actually the gospel that bridges this gap. It's the gospel that transforms identity. So this is what I want to call gospel transformation. This is how transformation actually happens. It's not through legalism. It's through faith in your new identity in Jesus Christ. And that's what verses one to four talk about. If then you've been raised with Christ, you see, set your minds on things above, you see, believe this about yourself, not, of, not on things that are on the earth, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. By the way, when Christ who is your life appears is not just talking about the second coming, it is talking about that, but it's saying when Christ appears through you, when you put on his clothing that is now rightfully yours to wear and he begins to appear through you, then the true you is also appearing in glory. There is a glory that is embedded inside of you by the spirit of God if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. It is the glory of the son of God himself inside of you that is appearing through you as you put on these new garments to match your internal reality. Men and women, if you get this, it will change you. I'm telling you, you cannot change yourself from the outside in. You are changed from the inside out as you believe more and more and more that you are chosen, you are holy, and you are dearly loved. If I could just get all of you in the room to believe that you are loved by God, which I can't do, but the Spirit can. Who has the right to name you other than your creator? Who has the right to tell you who you are other than your creator? Men and women, you're being told who you are. Do you believe?